It's nice. It's just like feeling having a family reunion, talking to friends. I, I know so many of you. For so many years, some of you. It's lovely. So, got my paper today. Well, just in case I, I, I forget the 32 attributes of Nibbana. 32 adjectives to define Nibbana in one of the suttas. So I didn't want you to miss that, so I made sure it was on a piece of paper. So, you've read the title, haven't you? Did it intrigue you? Yes. Did it confuse you? Yes. Yes. Well, that's good, because that's what it does to most people, really. <laughs> Including monks and nuns at some point. Even though we do have a tool, fortunately, to see the arising of thoughts in our mind and the passing away of it. So we don't have to linger too long figuring out Nibbana. Or what is Nibbana. Yet, there is a curiosity in, in our mind, isn't it? To, um, discover what we don't know. If you are a curious type, likes to exploring, use your brain, use your senses, to um, basically find out what you're looking for, what you are interested in. You know, it's very important to have that kind of awakened energy in ourselves that is really truly curious about how things work, how things are. And suddenly Nibbana comes at the top of how to figure out that one, you know. And I think it this kind of... Um, uh, you could say a, a condition of of really being completely befuddled with what is nibbana, what is you know. So suppose, according to the title, is why why is nibbana so unattractive? I think that's a word. Huh? And why is it, why is peace so boring? I still remember these thoughts crossing my mind many many years ago. Not exactly in the kind of that form, but just figure out what would happen when I was going to reach, <laughs> to reach Arahantship and Nibbana, basically the end of, the end of me, <laughs> the end of my world, the end of my fun, the end of my life. I felt, you know, you say, what is it? You know, if I didn't think very logically, that maybe the end of greed, hatred, and delusion will be much more fun than just swimming in the suffering of greed, hatred, and delusion. At that time, I just felt that something terrible will happen to me. That's what, how my mind would just bring up these kind of questions. What happened when I just peaceful all the time? What a bore. You know, the French are not particularly into that kind of peace. They love chatting and discussing and redoing the world again hundred times a day sometimes. You know, so I was part of this culture and I would say, wow, what would happen to me if I'm just a peaceful human being? I like peace, but up to a certain point. You know, a bit of fun and a bit eccentricities and a bit of, you know, kind of thing that rebellious, a little bit rebellious and 
kind of humorous, you know, it's kind of making fun of things, making fun of people, making fun of life, making fun of, you know, and then I had to abandon that, of course. And if I thought about it, I say, how can I abandon being humorous and making jokes and having fun? I repeat it, you know. I think a lot, many of us want to have a bit of fun, except when you come to a certain age, fun has kind of run out of steam a bit, you know. <laughs> we can have fun in a different way, but, you know. So, is peace boring? Is Nibbana unattractive? Can you tell me so I tell you? There's a white adjective. <laughs> Sometimes I could have said unappealing, you know. But, Anyway, it's the same thing, really. And so, it is an interesting uh, dilemma because when many, for, for many, many decades, I think, uh, Buddhism in the West was interpreted as a rather nihilistic teaching, tradition of teaching, kind of pointing to rather nihilistic reality. And so it took a while for the Westerners to come to understand that Nibbana had nothing to do with being nihilistic or analytic. It's just a, a term to designate the end of suffering. Now, for most people, maybe the kind of suffering that we'll, I will talk to you about might not be so um, apparent, so familiar, so much, so much uh, an experience that you have seen clearly, maybe. So, you know, when you ask, when the, uh, when the Buddha was asked, what is um, Buddhism? You know, what do you teach? So, we have thousands of teachings of the Buddha to get, guide you through the path of Buddhism. But it was interesting when he would just say, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That doesn't leave much for the intellectual, intellectual mind, does it? <laughs> to get really excited about philosophy and metaphysics and so on. It's just like, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So the mind, if the interpretation of the mind without really much training will say, well, I don't suffer. I'm fine. What's the problem? Is that Buddhism? That's Buddhism. I don't think I'm fit for it. I'm just going to go and be more clappy-clappy, you know, having fun in religious, another religious form, do maybe dervish dancings or something, rather than to have that thought in my mind, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Now, the end of suffering is quite appealing and attractive, isn't it? Uh, looking at suffering to come to the end of suffering, that's more difficult to bridge the two, right? Most people are really in a hurry to get rid of suffering, but they don't know how to do it. And the way they do it, they just keep piling up suffering because they just work from a reactivity of the mind. How can I get rid of it? How can I be free from suffering now? Give me a weekend, 3,000 pounds, I don't mind, but just to got to the end of suffering, the end of the Buddhist teaching, understand a whole lot with 2,000, 3,000 pounds, and great, you know. And yeah, there are many, many, many such things that exist in the world, believe it or not. 
So, um, in a way, the whole teaching of the Buddha, every aspect of the teaching of the Buddha, is to help us to incline to what he calls Nibbana, to direct our attention, our activity towards the end of suffering. It's a, you know, I, I, personally, I find this the most compassionate gift that the Buddha has offered to mankind is how to understand the suffering of a human life, even when everything is going well. You know, like I, I used to say, getting what you want is painful. Get, sorry, not getting what you want is painful. Getting what you don't want is painful. That's the def definition of the first noble truth of suffering. But then getting what you want and you hurt as well, it's painful as well. Then where do you go from there? And many people here have sure experienced this um, uh, situation where you get what you want and it takes very short time to feel dissatisfied with it. Mostly because you begin to be aware that your that thought has just moved on and you're onto the next turn of the wheel of desire. Already the mind is already filled up with something you want. It's like the kids. We often see the kids when they get a toy, they just they are kind of going driving their parents crazy to get a toy for Christmas or something. A few days later, it's in the bin somewhere, you know. It's in the <laughs> they just have lost all interest in this whatever they wanted to um, so badly to to get for the as a Christmas present. Well, we are a bit like in the same conditions in a way. In the same, you know, we are adult, yes, adult, but emotionally. For my experience, we're not so far from being quite young, very young in emotional level. We still hope to get what we want and get very distressed when we don't. We still hope to not be faced with the thing we don't like and get incredibly stressed to try to get rid of anything we don't like. Yeah, Whether it's a partner, whether it's the, what you wanted at the meal and somebody just took it in front of you was the last thing you had on your plate was on the plate of the celery offered you know oh what a and then if you're not really mindful you start attacking that person in front of you who innocently took the last cake that you'd been looking at even before the meal <laughs> he was hoping so hope has great side great positive side and it can be great disaster for happiness <laughs> Because you can easily be terribly disappointed quite quickly, as you probably noticed in your life. You hope for something, and that usually condition despair in a small dose or big dose, you know, but not despair in the sort of, you know, going to throw yourself in the, in the, in the Thames River, but simply disappointment and, and, and just kind of being miserable. Dukkha, what the Buddha calls dukkha. So um, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, Nibbana is not particularly attractive. It's not, it's not a quality that you can uh, define Nibbana with. But I just wanted to, I brought these because that always struck me. I just loved it, you know, when I find it many years ago. And in a way, it shows you that we have a hard time finding out what this piece of the end of suffering is about. Because there are about 32, I think, so the Nibbana 
I just read it to you, and you can, you know, focus on any any point, any any aspect of it. So nibbana is the unconditioned. Right? We need we live in a conditioned world. Our mind is a conditioned mind. Okay, the unconditioned is very foreign for us. What is the unconditioned? You know, that which is not caused by one thing or another, causeless. That you know that doesn't move, doesn't change. So, unconditioned, the destruction of lust, hate, and delusion, sometimes referred to as ignorance. The uninclined, what it means by this, you know, we're inclined to want a way, and the mind moves this way and that way. I like, I don't like. I hate, I love. You know, it keeps moving one way or the other, eh, in this kind of dualistic mode. The taintless, which means the pure mind without taints without what we call kilesa, or afflictive state of mind, or destructive state of mind, negative state of mind. Yeah? Um, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, everything passes away and change dies, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, the dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the asylum, the refuge, the destination, and the path leading to the destination. So this is some of the adjectives describing Nibbana. So it's not nothing that has to do with nihilism, annihilism. It's really what you discover, little by little, by contrast. What is it that is not Nibbana? What is it that I experience when I'm not peaceful, when I am distressed, when I am confused, when I am restless, when I am unhappy? You know, that is not Nibbana. Nibbana is the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. And happiness and unhappiness come from those roots. Yeah? And we have, fortunately, a path that uh, sort of de uh, de defined by the Buddha, you see, established by the Buddha, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is a fourth noble truth. So the first noble truth, instead of aiming at higher realms and trying to find what people might want to know, like what is its divine realm of happiness, and maybe nibbana may be. Many people think it's a state, it's a state of the mind that is going to take you to a higher realm of existence, and eventually you'll be sitting in a kind of divine, pure, purified, happy, uh, ecstatic mind state or world, universe. So, when you describe the unconditioned as an ecstatic, endless joy and peace 
uh, realm of existence, of course, people are really wanting to go there, don't they? <laughs> They're not going to dilly-dally, when, especially when they are miserable. They want something as beautiful as that. I didn't see the beautiful here, but I've, I've, I've seen an adjective, Nibbana, also the beautiful. And so, um, what we have really um, is this um, proposal or offer or deal, <laughs> you could say, with a, with, in the Buddhist teaching. You say, do you want to be free? Do you want to be, uh, you know, do you want to let go of the thing that makes you miserable? Do you really want to understand what this life that manifests in your mind how does that arise and how does that end? Does it ever end? People who are depressed think it never ends. And, and they never see the nature of their mind, their body, or they might not see it in a way that is sustained enough to get a clear picture. Yeah? So um, we're not talking about a teaching that is going to be peace, you know, uh, sort of uh, describe you, describe peace as a kind of, uh, again, as a realm of existence that is attractive particularly. It becomes attractive when you really experience the peace of the ending of suffering, of the suffering you experience in yourself. And at first, we have our time. We spend a great part of our life either looking for peace and happiness or sort of avoiding anything that is not in the line of that uh, hope, of that desire. You know, if it's not according, it's not according itself with that wish to have happiness and well-being, then unfortunately the mind starts doing things that are going to compound your misery. The Buddha talks about suffering as being the first arrow as an image, the image of a wounded man, wounded by an arrow. And instead of really uh, recognizing that he needs help rapidly, or otherwise he's going to die, he's apparently asking, you know, who sent it, what kind of arrow was it, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't realize he's dying and keeps on asking questions. So that's the first arrow is a dukkha that we experience in life, the fact that we, we, know we are born and then we grow up and then we, uh, you know, we, we, we age and then we get sick also in our lifetime. Sometimes big children get sick very early in their, in their life and then we die. So that's, you know, and then the mind, untrained mind, is full of miserable uh, emotions and mind states and, and desires. So a lot of unfortunate things crossing our mind again co constantly in under, you know, the kind of mind state that is, will be uh, under one umbrella of like greed and hatred, anger or um, self, you know, selfishness, wanting, wanting, wanting for me first, you know. And then the top one, ignorance, that's what's going to feed all this. You know, so um, you realize that for a long, long time we struggle with our human life because we don't have the tools that are going to help you to live and uh, uh, work 
with this reality of being stuck and caught up in a very dualistic way of uh, appearing in the mind. The mind is like yes or no, you know, good or bad, and with, you know, subtle level of these things, of course, but still, it's still functioning, not from a place of peace, from a place of reactivity. That's all we know. We don't know much more than that. I know that very well. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And at first, you, you, it's overwhelming to realize this. You know, it's very, um, you know, when I realized that, I thought, my God, how am I going to get myself out of this dilemma? Before I was a Buddhist nun, I had already seen a lot of that, that reactivity of the mind, the second arrow. And I was really puzzled. How am I going to find a way through the mind that keeps kind of, you know, moving into kind of a yo-yo movement? You're constantly, yes, no, I like, don't like, you know, with everything, every object of the senses. Not just the body, but also the mind, the eyes, the ears, nose, tongue, etc. Plus, the mind and its kind of ID, fixed IDs, opinions and views and perception of things. So it's like this and never like that. You know, it's she must be like you know she must not do that because it's wrong. And you know, we have all our stories uh, under this kind of umbrella, fixed views and fixed. Ideas, you know, opinions, I repeat, all right? I still remember the first sister, Rojana, who passed away in 87, when we were interviewed by journalists who came down to Chittas, and uh, uh, somebody asked her uh, how she was 50, so she was about 20 years older than her, us. The 50 seemed to be really old in those days. And, um, you know, you thought 50, you can't do anything more. It was, everything was difficult at 50, you know. But it, by the time you get to my age, you think, we are already young at 50. <laughs> I could do many things that I never thought I could do now, you know. But she, <laughs> she was asked, you know, how could you, how can you cope with a lifestyle here? I mean, you have only one main meal a day. You work all day long physically and, you sleep only five hours, five hours, six hours per night. You have to walk up the hill to go to the main meditation hall. Uh, it's cold, it's damp, there's no heating, there's nothing, you know, it's dark, it's you know, four o'clock, you go up, four thirty, you go up the hill with nobody around, nothing, you know. And she said, she had a good sense of humor, I have to say, she said, oh no, that was nothing, you know. The hardest thing is to give up my views and my opinions. I think she gave us a wonderful teaching, which I really like to bring. You know, so people think, "Oh my God, if I live a life like this, it's going to be terrible." No, it's it's the life you have in your mind already, right now. You're living with it day and night. Do you understand your views and your opinions? And they never really challenge until somebody tells you you're wrong. <laughs> so it's it's not easy to be um, to see to have the mirror of our own. Chitta, because we don't have it. We don't have it. We very often we just kind of fix in our views and opinions and just talk with the people who agree with me, <laughs> or we're not going to challenge me in my opinions. You know, we're going to stay put and going maybe frightened to challenge you. And it is fr fr frightening to to be challenged because maybe you don't have what it takes to respond uh, skillfully, you know, wisely, kindly, at least harmlessly, without you know, bringing a lot of hatred in your mind.
So, um, so nibbana is not is not a question of being attractive or not. Does does it is it pointing something to for in you to something you can relate to when you start looking at your own suffering? You know, I I just like the simple definition of. The, you know, the end of the suffer, seeing suffering and the end of suffering is another form of nibbana, you know, aspect of nibbana. When all suffering has ended, the Buddha says, this is nibbana. So we have, um, you know, a training in a way uh, that the Buddha uh, has described and experimented himself, obviously, that gives us a glimpse of nibbana. It's not the ultimate nibbana, but you get through your meditation practice, you begin to have a glimpse of what, and because emotionally, uh, this word nibbana doesn't really kind of grip us, doesn't it? It doesn't grip, it doesn't have a kind of sense of, wow, I want to go there. There was nowhere to go anyway, because nibbana is just the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. The absence. It's not another state of mind. It's when all has gone. And then you, you realize, uh, Buddha was an arahant, and he's obviously taught for 45 years and established a Buddha, a, a teaching that is still lasting 2,500 years later. So obviously, he hadn't lost his mind, has it, completely. There's something that kept functioning after he became an arahant. That's what people often fear. The suddenly death of me. And they seem by, if me is going to die, then there'll be nothing left of me. Nothing left of my me world. Not, nothing left of my emotional world, you know, which can be very beautiful and also very tragic in the extremes. Very beautiful and very, this emotional world can be very, you know, amazingly inspiring and also amazingly destructive. So the Buddha doesn't say we have to get rid of our emotions. He just basically um, kind of guides you, guides us towards seeing that whatever you are attached to, is it dukkha or is it not dukkha? He's not saying, I mean, maybe he said this is dukkha, but really the past is a question, a questioning of our life. And he's kind of uh, sort of turning our attention towards something which most human beings would not want to do, would not want to, to turn your attention to the suffering of one's human mind, it takes some conditions to be able to survive it, <laughs> survive the experience without being depressed or wanting to, you know, totally despair about your life forever. Well... Uh, what is very clear is that when you start not even meditating formally, I mean, I remember I came to this tradition not because I was a Buddhist, I was nothing particularly, you know, but I was really, I had already seen that my life, even though I had materially, I was happy, I was even had a, a good husband, you know, it's not, it's quite, not very often you get a, a, a good person, you know, to be as your husband, a good relationship, yet, Maybe because I was curious, I suppose, 
I, I did not know how to, you know, to define my suffering because it was not, I could not blame it on, I could blame it on maybe what I was doing or how I was feeling or how I was, what I wanted and I didn't get and so on, you know. But we, we, we don't have a vocabulary that leads to the sense of inspiration to walk this path and discover what this suffering is leading us to. Because my knowledge of suffering as a layperson before I met the Buddhist teaching was they were, it was very difficult to find a way out and unless you distracted yourself, you did something else. You know, unless you, you, you thought something, you know, you just move, moved away from it. It was a sense of what the Buddha calls the Vibhava Tanha, the desire to get rid of things and the, and the desire to get. That's the cause of suffering. Bhavatana, to become, when I'm happy, maybe I, I have this desire to, that keep propping up to want more happiness. And when I'm unhappy, there's an energy of desire, I just want to push that away. At very subtle level, it's not just a thought, it's an energetic body level. Do you understand? It's wordless, it's without concept, it's energetic. So sometimes we miss that. Because we're still thinking about Buddhism, and we're trying thinking to our way out of suffering, and we're thinking about why is that taking me anyway? <laughs> so um, then I realized that I did not know the, the the third way, so to speak, the the middle way. I did not know the middle way, but then at some point I noticed one thing, and maybe that can help you as well. I noticed one thing without being a Buddhist that when I had a, a peaceful moment in my heart, something very, very different, I was beginning to get to know what some people have called, John Coleman has called the silent mind. The silent mind. So it's a, the, the aware mind. I didn't know the aware mind. I didn't call it the conscious mind. I didn't call it anything. I just, the experience of peace in those moments were beginning to give me a sense of another world. And I didn't know what other world it was. Just a sense of being connected with something that was very different from my fear, my angst, my anger, my this, my opinions, my views to which I, to which I was attached to, or you know, views and opinions are not a problem if you're not attached to them. <laughs> you can just watch them and say hello. I haven't seen you for a while, right? You can just make friends with them, but you don't have to go and kill somebody because they think differently from you. And many people can do that mentally. Don't don't. Don't look at nothing, it never happened to you, how much you, you know, we want to destroy somebody, you know, even the happiness, simply their happiness, simply because they don't agree with you. That's, so, that's, that's the power of opinions and views and deep attachment usually. The deeper the attachment, the more you'll be angry and frustrated if somebody disagrees with you. So this is, you know, going back to the opinions <laughs> aspect of the mind and the treacherous kind of result of that. So, um, yeah, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, peace is an acquired taste. <laughs> Just bringing Ajahn Sumedho makes everybody happy, I notice. <laughs> it's an acquired taste. He was so, you know, a virtuoso, really. 
to explain Buddhist teaching, you know, from the point of view of Western psychology, because his mind was a Western uh, mind conditioned by, the, you know, the, the psychology of this culture. So he would he would recognize, you know, I don't think many Asian teachers have said the same thing. It's an acquired taste. It's like, you know, you don't get you don't get it straight away. You just have beginning to feel, to see, to experience it, and something in your heart starts to awaken to it. Something in your heart begins to talk to you, or you talk to it. You have a door, a little door open to begin to talk to that mind, that heart, that is yearning for peace, you know, that is also uh, yearning for liberation, from being liberated from all these uh, conditioned realities to which we are attached and imprisoned with. We are very much imprisoned in, my, in our mind for a long, long time until through the meditation that we are, uh, we practice here. Uh, some people have called it, you know, the whole vipassana, uh, which is just uh, an aspect of uh, looking at the mind, you know, uh, and then, the, you know, the, the, we have the concentration and then the vipassana practice. And then, of course, a foundation to make sure the mind is in the right, in a good place, in a, ha a happy place, without uh, too much remorse and too much regret and too much, you know, the human mind is really prone to a lot of, you know, spending a lot of time regretting and feeling remorseful about the nasty thing you've done, which might not be so nasty, but just you, re you remember them as something very unpleasant, very hurtful to you, towards yourself or others, right? So. He offered this this kind of um, you know the, the, this meditation that enables us to actually look at the mind directly, stop reading books, you know, and Ajahn Shah said, and start reading the book of your heart. And the book of your heart is really reading the chitta, reading the mind, which is not just a brain; it's not the computer of your brain. It's the story of your life as it as it arises daily. And then beside that, it's also the uh, you know, looking directly without, you know, paper pages in be between you and your mind, looking directly at the, at the chitta. So that is a huge step because then you get to know the reality of what the Buddha talks about for yourself. You know it, you know. And, you know, so the, the most important thing that we uh, learn in our meditation practice is this law of anicca the law of impermanence, right? Buddha talks even at some point I was reading, sort of when you see anicca, you really basically, uh, what I remember, I'm just kind of elaborating a little bit, you know, basically you are practicing the path and you know the Dhamma and you know also you're on the right direction for Nibbana, you know. Impermanence, because... What when your mind is not see, seen as a, a kind of um, a reality that constantly changing, the thing that stops you from seeing the mind constantly changing is often, unfortunately, driven by fear. When you don't see anicca, you're meeting your fears. You could say you meet your ignorance as well. You meet your, you know, the fact that you haven't never you never looked at it. Never really seen it, you know, truly. And some of the things, you don't mind them being impermanent, you know, things we don't like, good riddance, you know. I'm glad it's all impermanent. But there are many things we're attached to. 
for for many of us who can justify for the right reasons, you know, for good reasons. Why should I get get rid of this, you know? So I remember when Ajahn Sachito was tra training the nun, he said, you know, because he's quite extreme, and, you know, at, the, at that time, he was quite extreme in his practice, was kind of, and he used to say, get rid of everything, let go of everything, sisters, except your robes and your arms bowl. <laughs> so that kind of, uh, the, on the conventional realities that brought, he brought in the teaching from the ultimate, you know, to the reality of now, the conventional reality of our life. So the Buddha is pointing to two levels of reality, the, the unconditioned reality and the, and the conditioned reality. Okay, so at the moment I'm talking to a level which is beyond, it's not beyond the condition, but it's really relating to an aspect of the mind which is, you know, um, a level of the meditation level of seeing the mind directly, what it takes to see the mind directly. You know, after that, you can use that seeing, you can use that knowledge to deal with your mind, not seeing just the mind, but also seeing what comes out of your mind, the reality of your world now. You know, the mind manifests as, as, as your reality now, through the eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So, after you've been able to really see uh, deeply your mind itself, that which is going to project itself in the life, then you begin to um, have, no, I wouldn't say a handle on it, but you begin to be a little bit more um, skilled in living. How do you become more skilled in living? I'm sure you know already how to get skilled, how to be skilled in living. Some of you have, have lived long enough to know certainly what it is unskilled. As the longer you live, the longer you realize, oh dear, maybe I should have done it better. Oh dear, that was just a good way of moving forward. <laughs> but at least we remember, and maybe that particular experience leads us to a, a good lesson and a good so. When we um, practice and look at the mind again and come back directly, then we have also a chance, fortunately, to see the truth. And the truth is that all things are impermanent. Whether you like it or not, it moves on. So you might as well get used to it. But there's one thing that's not moving, is the capacity to observe. The mind that sees, the mind that knows, you know, it's a big, it's a big name in, in the forest tradition. It's a big expression. It's, what I mean by big is like, it means a lot in this, this two words. The puru means the person who knows. Ru, ru, like, um, rujak means knowledge, uh, I know in, in, in Thai. The one who knows, the one who sees. That is always, never let me down. Never let me down once. But very often, we don't have the conditions to actually establish the, the one who knows in ourselves because we're still stuck on one particular thought, on one particular story, on one particular whatever, something. So, this is where meditation is really handy because it, it unglued you for a while, you know, from all that stuff that goes on in your mind. You, you get unglued for it for a little while. 
So you see, oh my God, there's all that thought going on. Then suddenly you feel, you realize that your mind was like a room filled up with stuff, lots of furnitures and lots of things going on. When you have come to a sense of peace, you're not enlightened, you're not nothing like that, but you begin to see that when you are identified, absorbed into any object of your mind, you lose the big view, you lose what you call right view, because you are blocked. So that's why it's important to use this meditation to open yourself to the space of your mind. And that comes with the peace of your mind. And then people say, well, what do I do when I'm at peace? You know, they don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite happy not to know what to do. I can hear my mind, I don't know what to do, but at least I can hear that thought. Why do I want to, to know? Okay? Of course, and the people will say, well, you meditate on the body, and then you look at the parts of the body, and then you look at your thoughts, and, you know, you look at dukkha, and... But still, the mind says, well, what do I do now? It doesn't hear the teaching. It doesn't hear, you know, it can. I mean, I'm not saying that's not happening, but the perplexity of the mind, it goes on. So when you um, uh, find peace in meditation, don't think you have finished the, the journey. It's just simply you're opening the space of your mind for things to arise in consciousness. And I was so happy. I mean, I have to say, Ajahn Sumedho is my, is my, how do you say, um, champion <laughs> in the Buddhist teaching. Because he just said things that are so just basically real, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, he just said this thing about knowing what you do when the mind is um, finding peace and then he, he was just expressing that uh, we don't find particularly a mind quiet, attractive, you know. A mind that is um, doing nothing, we don't find it attractive. We like an active mind. We like a busy mind, right? And uh, um, I, I, I lost a little story about that. It will come back, don't worry. Anyway... Um just have to recollect my mind quietly. So when oh yeah, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, you know, the mind is not something you look the, the Dhamma is not something you look for, you know. You don't search Dhamma in yourself. You allow the Dhamma, through your practice, you allow the Dhamma to arise in consciousness. And I really love that because it seems so true to me. When the mind is at peace, then you allow the truth to come up without all this kind of agitation to search for something. Desire, world, searching for something. And that's what that silence I used to feel in the heart. That's what it was doing to me without being a Buddhist particularly. There's a lot of things rising in my heart which nothing particularly religious or divine or some kind of gods or devas or nothing. It was just a certain reality and truth that would kind of shake me a little bit or kind of make me questions. 
And so when Lumpo said that, I said, oh, yeah. It touched me straight away. I knew, almost I knew what he was saying, even though I didn't have to believe him blindly. But it resonated for me. And that's what meditation sort of facilitates for you. And very often, when peace in the mind arises, people have asked me hundreds of times, what do I do when the mind is peaceful? I said, don't even ask any question. Just stay there until it ends. Until it ends. My mind is the same. <laughs> I've got the same question. you know. But I'm, I'm, I know it very well. So I just stay with that experience of peace, knowing it's impermanent. Do you understand? It's just an it's just an experience of peace. It's not something that you know suddenly turns me into a nibbanic being, or into some kind of elevated divine entity. People think they are enlightened often when they just come, especially in the Buddhist world, meditation or any kind of spiritual world. They think they've you know once their mind are find peace and nothing moves. They think oh, I've reached the end. In fact, I remember when I was in Thailand and uh, tw- nearly 20 years ago, uh, I was on a, doing a retreat for a few years there, and uh, uh, you know I went to see a teacher who was very well known at the time. He was not so well known, but I'd, I mean he was already quite well known in the forest tradition. And um, when I left his monastery to go to, to spend a vasa to another monastery or another, another forest monastery, we had a long discussion, very funny. But he was kind of challenging me on all sides, you know. But in the end, he said, well, um, you can stay in my monastery or you can do to Ajahn Anand's monastery, and, but make sure that you, have, you understand what Nibbana is. Because when people practice concentration or when monks or nuns have practiced concentration, uh, in Thailand, there is a danger of uh, people thinking they have reached Nibbana because they are concentrated. And there's been a lot of misunderstanding at that level, you know. They thought they reached the pass, they finished. Actually, no, no. And so he warned me against that, in case I was going to go into some kind of absorption practice, (laughs) in case. (laughs) But anyway, he was a great jhana, uh, you know, very, very well-known for his ability to concentrate and so on. So, um, let me look at the time. Mm. So you could say at some level, the whole teaching is pointing to Nibbana. The whole teaching is helping you to incline towards Nibbana, towards the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, to direct you in that way, to move towards Nibbana. Nibbana, you might not be what, you know what it is, but at least you know what is not Nibbana. And that's the most important thing. What is not the end of, you know, the, the, the world where greed, hatred, and delusion have not ended yet. Do you understand? And what the, um, you know, you will say, why do I have to do this? I'm quite happy with my greed, hatred, and delusion. Maybe. Well, if you're happy, just stay with it. You know, you don't need to move out. <laughs> You only move out because you want to move out. Do you understand? It's not for, you know, remember how the Buddha was uh, uh, known as a physician of, of the mind, uh, giving us a medicine to 
liberate the mind from suffering. So uh, if you don't want the medicine, you don't need to. You're a free being. You take the medicine as you wish, you know. But if you really realize that this medicine is really good, like I have, you know, then the doors are open in a way for you to walk confidently on this path. The doors of the deathless are open for those who have faith, you know. The doors of the deathless, the doors of Nibbana is another word, the deathless, the immortal, the unconditioned, are open for those who have faith. And faith is just the ability to walk without really knowing always where you're walking towards what, but you have faith. You know something in you is stronger than your doubts. You see, um, one thing which I can share with you is that when I was a chitter and started the training, um, I was told about the five hindrances, greed, hatred, and uh, restlessness, worry, and then sloth and torpor, and then doubt, the five hindrances. Those five hindrances are very important to get to know them and to get to be dis, you know, non-attached to them, non-identified. Because as long as you are identified with them, they keep on recreating misery. They keep on recreating a mind that is seeing the world through doubts, through not question. I'm not talking about wise questioning of things, you know, awakened questioning, you know, from the awakened mind intelligent mind, but just the mind that is constantly uh, doubting things. Now, of course, doubting things is a good thing, because the Buddha himself said, don't believe me, just quest find out for yourself. But there's an aspect of this doubt which is called, you know, uh, is a hindrance, right? And uh, this aspect of doubt is just the habit aspect, when it's just a condition phenomena in your mind, and it's what we call habits. You just don't doubt because you want to question. You doubt because you're just used to it. Your mind straight away, because for a long time we think we are in charge of the mind. You see, you think we, it's me, me doubting. Actually, as the more you practice, the more you begin to, you realize it's not me, it's just a habit moving in. Habits just setting themselves down in your, in your chitta. Right? And the cheetah is not the brain, remember, it's your world. It's, it's around it, say we were. It's your story, it's your world. The world you see through the six senses, you experience through the six senses, you remember through the six senses, and so on. Yeah? So, when you, um, you know, when you see this kind of mental state coming in, you feel, oh, I have done something wrong. You haven't done something wrong, you just don't know yet how to deal with your mind. You know, you don't have to blame yourself for being deluded. You don't have to blame yourself for being ignorant because you keep sending you, you keep shooting, you keep shooting the second arrow then, again and again. That's what people do. They become Buddhist and they enter the hell realm of me, criticizing me for not being such a good Buddhist. You know, constantly being dissatisfied by, with quote-unquote the Buddhist you have become. If you're not careful. Yeah, so you have to be careful not to keep sending the second arrow that makes you inclined toward the opposite of nibbana, which is suffering and misery, and and despair and sorrow and all the rest of it. 
attachments, you know, which mean narrow view, unskillful views, tinted by greed, hatred, or delusion. The view is not clear. And so there's another aspect that is very, very important, which comes from non-attachment. It's the aspect of observing the empty mind, the non-attached mind. That's when the, the path, you know, when you are really on the path, you're on the path of mindfulness. And mindfulness is that part of the mind that is showing you attachment, but there's no attachment there. So you open your mind to a, something much bigger space there. No view, no opinions. You just listen. You just take, you know, take into account life as it is. You see life as it is. And then maybe your response to that, you know, when those, that those conditions are present, then you be, you can then experiment the response that comes out of that mind that is non-attached. My experience from this, it's always been extremely positive. The best thing I could do in my life came always from that place of non-attachment. Now, non-attachment doesn't mean that you don't hold, you know, if, if, I don't know, if I wasn't holding my robe, maybe it would fall apart and I start walking around with no robes. You know, I have to hold my robes too, especially when it's windy like this, you know. So it's not like you don't hold things. Ajahn Sumedho often used to say, kind of pick up an object and say, you know, I'm attached now to the, I'm holding this, you know, I'm, I'm holding with my hands. I'm attached to, my hand is attached to this bell, to this little gong. But I don't have to carry it in, in the tube when I go to London, do I? I mean, this is my story. <laughs> yeah. He said, I don't have to hold it forever. I just hold it when I needed it, and then I put it down. Ah, oh, that's lighter. Do you understand? So you don't have to be, you know, it's not, you, have to, you don't have to be attached to anything, but pick it up when you need it, and you learn how to let it go when you don't need it. Most of the time, our mind is busy with a lot of things that are just the fruits, the result of memory, being attached to memory, being attached to the past, being attached to things that are dead, dead, as dead as a dodo, as you say in English. Right? And you still carry it on your back. And the rucksack is getting heavier every day until you meet Buddhism and start meditation, maybe. Because you... You learn the art of letting go. You learn the art of leaving the past behind. You learn the art of seeing suffering and the end of suffering. You learn the art of being fearless. The fear are very important to look at that. Because that's what is really getting us stuck in our joy of life. That's what brought me to be a Buddhist nun. I didn't want to be a Buddhist nun anyway. Or Buddhist, uh, even Buddhist, I didn't want to be a Buddhist. I didn't want it to be just awake. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant exactly, but something more intelligent than what I could concoct with my own fears and desires, you know. So, in a way, um, if you don't have fun in life, if you think peace is not, you know, interesting, just look at your mind for a while. You have a lot of fun. Especially when fear comes, you'll find out what you do then. You have a lot of fun just watch, watching the madness of irrational mind. Saying yes one day, no the next day, just through fear, very often, through unpleasant feeling. Our mind, our, our world is driven by 
pleasant and unpleasant feeling. That's what makes us move. Do you understand? Nothing else. Nothing else. And you say, my God, <laughs> my mom, if I don't have any unpleasant feeling anymore, what will I do? I won't move anymore then. Oh, what do I do? I'll just be dead on my chair. And then I, suddenly, I, out of nothing, you can speak for an hour, you know. So, obviously, I wasn't dead. I'm talking about a long time ago, not now. But, you know, this, this feeling that if me is not activated, somehow, nothing will happen. So people take a bigger me, you know, like God, or you know, somebody else, a big guru or something that... It's good because it inspires you to have a more wise me in your in your chitta, part of your chitta. Do you understand? That you can maybe embrace and feel that you you're one with or whatever. But that's not the path of liberation, you know. To me, for my own experience, you know, depending on somebody else is not for me, not a path of liberation. Inside yourself, the knowledge you get from yourself cannot be d- out of dependence on somebody else. Somebody else can help you and support you and guide you in the right direction. As you say, you cannot only take the horses to the to the you know the source, but you to the water, but you cannot make them drink. It's exactly the same spirit, you know. You can, you have everything, the teacher, the guru, the Buddha, everything can tell you what to do. But if you don't do it yourself, Nothing will happen. You just keep on treading the meal of, you know, the, the running meal of habits. Keeps on. Some of you have good habits, so life is not too bad. Others are habits that are, it's like a, a, an addiction. You know, many of us will consider perhaps addicted to ignorance. I gave a talk not long ago saying that Marawati was a really a detox session, detox center of ignorance, greed, hatred, and delusion, you know. So don't be depressed about you know what what is you know when we describe the Buddhist teaching like that because it takes it doesn't take that long to get the joy of knowing when you don't cling to things it's so much happier and it's so much liberating and freeing and then that also affects your friends and your family and everybody else because instead of being a nasty opinionated judge and critics you become somebody that can actually embrace other people and listen to other people with different views and opinions and speak nicely and friendly to others, communicate in a way that actually people can hear you rather than run away or wait until it's finished. You know, bear with you or just um, feeling that they're suffering, bearing with the suffering of one thing or another when you talk to them. So... Um, yes, peace is an acquired taste. You need to experiment and experience it yourself. And Nibbana uh, doesn't need to be attractive. Don't worry, you run to Nibbana when you start looking at your suffering without even doing anything, you know. Because Nibbana is not, a, is not a world, it's not a state. It's just the end of suffering. And, just to finish, I'm going to quote Ajahn Sumedho again, the end of suffering is so uninteresting for people, they never notice it. That's why they don't walk the path. Do you understand? People don't notice. You know, It takes a lot of attention and it takes a lot of interest to not look for peace, but notice it when it's there. To actually be present when 
peace is there. And then for me, little by little, as I, I this, it's like a refuge. After a while, it's a refuge of awareness. It's a refuge of wakefulness. It's a, it's a home that, you know, keeps your mind sane. Otherwise, your mind is just engulfed, engulfed into the whole stories of me with, uh, you know, colored by the, the states of mind of hatred or greed or selfishness or boredom, or right? And so to go back to these five uh, mental states, and then we'll end, unless these five mental states are as unknown to the point where you have stopped identifying from them completely, at least you can see them through awareness. And then you de you have more chance to not get caught in them, which means you have more chance to not get absorbed in those states of mind and imprisoning yourself and unabling, unabling yourself to move forward with wisdom. And in fact, the Buddha said, the wisdom will not manifest as long as greed, hatred, and delusion are present. And by present, he means you're not seeing them for what they are. You're not seeing them as anicca, dukkha, anatta, and you don't seeing them as states of mind or emotions, or whatever, an object of the mind. And that is what the past is about. It's not about grand words, clever, uh, you know, clever statements, um, philosophy, metaphysics, or anything like that. It's about the nitty-gritty of just looking at each moment as they are. And it's not something you want to claim to the world because nobody will understand you anyway. They think you're mad. You should be helping the world and, you know, taking care of other people. And so much so that I remember at the beginning of uh, our community when one somebody, well, one of our monks went to Thailand. He, he was not, you know, he, he was not one of our monks any, anymore. But he had had an interview in Thailand. And he had spoken on behalf of the nuns, you know, like saying, yes, the nuns one day will be uh, serving, uh, will be helping in hospitals, us. Well, Achen Sumedo, I must say that because it's important, Achen Sumedo put all his effort in having the nuns not identify necessarily with potties and sick people and, you know, and, and all that, babies and all that. You know, basically, he treated us just as a summoner. And this, the, even a monk could say that. The, the, the nuns of Chetas, you know, can, you know, when they are really more mature, quote-unquote, will be able to work in hospital and relieve the suffering of people. Why not? I mean, it's not a problem. But he didn't, does not realize the work, in inner work that we are doing. It's a very... Um, you know, profound work. Nobody can see it, except in your daily life, you can begin to see, you begin to be more kind of, people more happy to be with you. <laughs> you be more kind of a person who can, uh, you know, is less, you know, doesn't have this state, this reactivity of the mind of greed, hatred, and illusion constantly, you know, in one form or another. And then you're more peaceful, you're more peaceful person, because you're not, you don't have any, Acts to grind, you know, or grudge, or you have let go of your resentment, you let go of all these things. And then you know from experience that the world, at some point, 
I suppose it's like being vegetarian. When people cling to a bit of being vegetarian or vegan or something, you know, you just can't have meat anymore. And at some point, you just can't, you have no, no, absolutely no face whatsoever in dealing with life with anger, for example. It not, not, doesn't mean that the anger is not finished, but you just don't have any, you know, you know it doesn't work. It does, it's never worked and it will never work. But of course, then you have to have also, uh, 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 how can I say, um, the skill of developing the skill of good communication. You know, there's, we're l lucky we are at a time in this uh, society where there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of access of developing skills in, uh, you know, in, I say, kind communication, firm but kind, you know, intelligent communication, I would call it, you know. So uh, you can't just let yourself be, do a walk over and beaten up. Although the Buddha did say, if you, somebody cut you in pieces, you know, in little pieces, yeah, saw you with a two-hand saw, you know, and, uh, you know, and you had a, a moment of anger, you will not be my disciple. So I, I gave a wrong example, really. But <laughs> anyway, we can finish maybe now, and uh, hopefully you won't expect Nibbana to be attractive because it's only attractive when you begin to see for yourself the end of a miserable mind. And if your mind is happy, fine. Just wait for the disease to, be, to strike and be visible to actually find the medicine interesting. Yeah? Okay, I didn't know this. <laughs>